Well, we are continuing, obviously, in the passage that we started last week. Um, and as you can see from your bulletin there, this is the Lord's Prayer. We're still in part one. How can you have part one and be continuing? It's because we didn't finish last week. But we are continuing with part one. As we began our exposition of this account in chapter 17, uh, we were only able to cover the background. We were only able to cover the foundation. That's why we're continuing today. And let me remind you of just a few things that are important, and for those of you who are not here, so you can get the benefit and understand where we are in our study of the Word of God. We noticed last week in that foundation, in that background, that this truly, John chapter 17, truly is the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> This truly is what Jesus Christ prayed. It is also called the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. We noted last week that what we call the Lord's Prayer, as recorded in Luke, for example, and in Matthew, and as we looked at it last week, is only a model for prayer. That which often Christians recite, or local assemblies recite, or people repeat over and over as the Lord's Prayer is really not the Lord's Prayer. That was given to the apostles as they asked him to teach them to pray, and he gave them a model, model for prayer. And more importantly, we noticed as we looked into the text of Matthew, and let us not forget this, that was done in the immediate context, that prayer, as to let them know that it was not intended to be repetitious prayer. He just said to them, when you pray, do not pray repetitions repetitiously. And then he taught them that prayer. So it was really never intended to be just repetitiously said. Though we did say there are times that it's good to remind ourselves of that, gives a good model, etc., etc. So this is really the Lord's Prayer. That was last week's entire message with a couple of other things. We also noted that chapter 17, once again, and I'm delighted, and people have often come to me and asked me this, Pastor Dan, how do you look at a text? How do you understand? And I give you this again so that you can do this for personal study. My situation is not one that's very deep. I'm just being honest. I let the text speak for itself. I get my outlines honestly from the texts. I don't try to get them from a magazine or a book or anything else. You can do the same. I think this text outlines itself very well. In verses 1 through 5, we see him praying for his personal desires. Then in verses 6 through 19, you'll notice in verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. So he goes into a different section. And from 6 to 19, he talks about praying for the men that he had given him, his apostles. And then he gets into, he structures it again in verse 20, you'll notice, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but those also who believe in me through their word. <clears throat> so the third part of my outline is the third part of what we find here in the text, and that is Jesus praying not just for himself or his desires and not just for his apostles, but then he prays for the extended believers or, if you will, universally for all believers in verses 20 to 26. So that's the outline that I'm using. And we're in that first section, the Lord's Prayer, part one, in dealing with him praying for his personal desires. 
And so today we pick it up where we left off, and it's <clears throat> still under the first point that's on your bulletin in the outline <clears throat> on the back. We're dealing with the timing and the purpose for the prayer. All we covered last week was the timing of it. So let me just remind you again where we're at for those who might not have been here. Since chapter 13 through chapter 16, the Lord was went into the upper room. He's been praying with his disciples. He's been instructing them privately. He spent over three years with them, working, ministering, performing miracles, demonstrating, and teaching publicly and teaching privately. But now he's ready for the cross. He's hours away from the cross. And as he did that, he wanted to get alone privately. He's been instructing them. He's been teaching them. He's been really trying to get their focus of attention because he's leaving them. And he reminds them, I'm leaving them. You're going to carry on the ministry. Here's how you can do it. And he's been pouring his heart out to them in that prayer. Where he is specifically, and it's worth looking at these two things just one more time, Look at chapter 14 in verse 31, because again, people try to, all the commentaries are trying to determine when this took place. Well, I leave it this simple because this is where the passage leaves it. If you look at chapter 14, verse 31, he says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly, now keep that in mind this morning, as the Father commanded me. And then he said this, get up, let us go from here. So he left the upper room somewhere at the end of chapter 14, then went into the vine and branches and all that stuff we've been studying. And then when you look at chapter 18, now look to that again, and just verse 1, at the end of this prayer, we find these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, Kidron Valley, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. That's Gethsemane. So while some have placed this prayer in Gethsemane and some have said it's here, there, whatever, all I know is this. It was somewhere where he left that private discussion. He's still talking to them. But as we've learned, he's walking along the way in chapter 15, chapter 16. He's still discussing matters with them privately. And in the midst of that, this is his prayer. So he's praying with them. He has not got to the Garden of Gethsemane yet. He's on his way, and he's praying with them, and they hear his prayer, and they see the way he prays. So again, that is the timing. He's just hours before his crucifixion and death, and that's what he talks about in verse 1. When he looks to heaven, he prays to the Father, and we spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, but a lot of our time last week on that, and don't take for granted, let me remind you, I've had a couple of people in the assembly that have come to me this week and been encouraged by that, so I want to encourage you again. Just the privilege that we have to call the God of this universe our Father. This was unheard of. And when that's why the Jews understood what Jesus said when he called God his Father. They knew he was making himself equal to God. And by extension now, we have this absolute privilege, and that's why we find those terms in Scripture by Paul, Abba, Father, to cry out to the God of the universe with that type of relationship it's enormous. Don't take that for granted as you pray as a Christian. But you notice that he said in there uh, that his hour has come. That hour, we have said, and if you want, he anticipated it in chapter 2, in chapter 7, in chapter 8. We've been seeing that throughout the book. 
Then in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, as part of this instruction, he reminded them that his hour was now come, the hour of his death. And he was leaving them to go back to the Father. And that's what's led to all of this instruction. And so in chapter 17, again, he says the hour is here. It was, the, it was like you knowing that you're about to die. And he did not stop ministering. He continued to teach. And even in his prayer, he's teaching. So knowing that he's facing death now and he's facing beyond the physical death, bearing the penalty of sin, bearing the rejection of the Father in that sense, bearing the rejection of all those he's with right now, in all of that, he prays. And he doesn't, let me remind you, he doesn't ask to get out of it. And we've applied that. We in our trials often ask, get me out of here. That's not what he asked for. He's praying even personally that something would happen. And that's where we left it off. What was the real concern of Jesus' heart? And by the way, we never ever, listen carefully, we never ever know the motives of Paul, of Peter, of Mark, of Luke, or even of the Lord. We never know that unless he tells us it. If the scriptures reveal it, we know the motives. So be careful when you're studying the scriptures and say, the real reason they did this was. Well, we don't know that, really. That's, that's a summation and maybe an intelligent guess. But when he reveals it to us, we know. So what is the thinking behind Jesus Christ? He tells us with the motivation. He tells us, and now we pick it up this morning, what the purpose of this prayer is. What is it? Right there in verse 1. Here it is. The hours come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. There is the purpose of his personal desires. What is it? For the son to be glorified. Now what does that mean? It means to be praised. Stay with me. It means to be manifest. For those of you that are looking at the Greek word right now with your, with your iPads or whatever, that's what the concept is behind it. It means to be made manifest. It means to be revealed. It means really to be recognized as a person of renown. That's the whole concept behind this word glorified. It means to be praised. It means to be honored. And it literally means the concept is behind this in its context as well, to be recognized, catch this, to be recognized, revealed, manifested for who he really is. He wants the son to be recognized for who he really is. Who is that? The Messiah. That's what he's been teaching. That is the purpose of John's gospel, that people would understand that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, they might have life in his name. And his heart prayer is lined up exactly what John has been teaching. He wants the Son to be glorified in this way, to be manifested or to revealed even in going to the cross, even in facing the hour of his death. For people to be able to glorify or praise him by recognizing him for who he is. The Messiah. The Redeemer. The only one true Son of God. The only Savior of the world. And that's what he's been teaching them. That's what he taught them in chapter 14 in the upper room. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. It's so that when they look at the crucifixion, they don't just see it as another person crucified. So when they see all that he goes through, they don't just see it as anything else, but they, in a sense, glorify the Son. This truly is the Son of God, the soldier at the side. That's his desire. His desire, and you say, well, that's pretty selfish. That he recognized that he wants to be glorified, he wants to be magnified for who he really is. Well, wait a minute. The verse isn't done. He wants the Son to be recognized in that way. Why? He tells you. Watch. That is the purpose. He says, I want to be glorified, Father, that the Son may glorify you. There it is. There's the purpose. He explains it. Because if they know who Jesus Christ truly is, what is it going to cause? Glory to go to the Father. It's going to cause them to understand who the one true God is, and I'll be dealing with that in a second. It's going to cause them to look to God to see his eternal plan. It's going to reveal who the Father is. So that ultimately what he's looking for is the manifestation, the magnification, the praise of who the Father is. His desire has always been that. Would you look at me just recently in, in some of the passages in John? Go back to John chapter 12 for a second. Look at verse 28. John chapter 12. Watch. It's always been in the heart of Jesus Christ. Verse 28. Father, what does he say? Glorify your name. Then we have the voice coming from heaven. I have both glorified it. Watch this. And I will glorify it again. When's that going to happen? Even in his death. His desire is to see his father glorified. Chapter 13, the upper room. Go with me to verses 31 and 32. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, watch this, and God is glorified where? In him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. There's the unity that we've talked about in our study. And will glorify him immediately. And what he's talking about even in the upper room is, again, his focus is on the Son and the Father getting glory. They are in this together and pointing it back to the Father. Afi talked about the fact that he's going to prepare a mansion and where he is, they will be also. What did he say then? Chapter 14, verse 13. Look at it. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, there we have prayer. That will I do. Now we've dealt with that. Why? Here's the purpose, the explanation. So that, what? The Father may be glorified where? In the Son. That's his focus. He just never loses focus. When he comes into this world, we have God in the flesh, and right away he's there to please the Father. That's why he said, remember what I said earlier. He's always looking for the Father to be glorified. That's his focus of attention. Thus, as the Son is glorified in performing the plan of God, the Father is glorified because they are one in harmony, the one true Godhead. No wonder we find, now does this make sense? John chapter 1, verse 14, actually John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Then you come to verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word was made flesh. 
And then we find out in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, these words, I believe, that you find out that this is Emmanuel. What does that mean? He explains it. God with us. See? It comes together. No wonder we have the writings of Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. You see, it all comes together. It all just comes together. Glorify the Son because I'm going to glorify you. We are in this together. And that is the absolute focus of attention. And his hour is come. And I bring you back to something we've seen recently a couple of times, but I want you to see it once more. Go to Galatians chapter 6. I want you to grasp this. Not just intelligently, but I want you to grasp it so it grips your life. It affects you in the world as you go to work, as you're working at home, as you're with your neighbors, as you have opportunity to do anything. It was uh, what Pastor Chris shared this morning, reminded me of our whole men's meeting yesterday because we dealt with the life of Solomon and how Solomon, all the benefits he had, and no matter what he pursued, it was all empty when it's apart from God. It affected his life, see? Well, what you've got here is Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 14 again. Why do you think Paul said this? I think it's back at what we're looking at in John. Here it is. May it never be that I would boast, that I would be proud, except where? Help me. In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Through the world, uh, excuse me, through which? Through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I will never have the right focus of my life in this world and my relationship to this world unless I understand the cross. That's what he's saying. In other words, when back in chapter 17, verse 1, he's talking about glorify the Son, why his hour has come, you see? And I will glorify you. And that's why Paul said, I glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? It pointed to identifying Jesus Christ is who he truly is, the Messiah, the one sent by God. And in that, the Father was glorified. And in that, salvation was made possible. And in that, remember this, don't forget it. What had he instructed them, the last words of chapter 16 before chapter 17? Remember? I have what? Overcome the world. He said, you're going to have trials. But he said, take courage. I have overcome the world. No wonder Paul says, I'll glory in the cross. Because in that, I understand my relationship to the world. I overcome in the cross. You see? So Jesus Christ is saying, Father, glorify me. Let them see who I am. And by the way, let me take a little side trip as I usually do. If you're here without Jesus Christ, and you're looking to a religion, if you're looking to your own goodness, if you're looking to your family ties, if you're looking to attending churches or reading your Bible as the basis of restoring a relationship between you and God, it will never happen there. We are all sinners and have come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. There isn't a one of us. Not a single one. What does that mean? Well, it's pretty simple. The wages of sin is death. 
Well, I understand physical death. We're all going to die. Yes. But we already died spiritually because of our sin. We're separated from God. Well, how do you reconcile that accountant in me, right? How do you bring that back? How do you, how do you get that balance sheet? It's only one way. Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. That's why Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. He sent his son and wanted people to recognize who he is so that people would glorify God because God so loved the world. I'll come back to that. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Why did he send them? To pay the penalty and price for sin primarily, get this, to satisfy the righteousness of a holy God. And now whosoever will believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Will not die in their sins, but will have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And so his heart's prayer as he's walking with them for himself, his Father, help them glorify me, help them recognize who I am, help them see what's going on, help them see your eternal plan. He'll come to that in verse 5, because you will be glorified in it. And he wants them to understand that. Now, how was it accomplished? Well, in verses 2 to 4, it was accomplished in his life and in his death. And by the way, these verses have so much depth to them, I can't even get to the bottom of them, you know, and you can just study these. What a tremendous prayer this is in chapter 17. We could spend, honestly, if you really wanted to break it down, you could probably spend months and months and months just in the first three verses, the first five verses. I won't do that to you. In verse 2, we pick it up. He says, even as you have, excuse me, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, there it is again, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. In very simple things for your notes, what are we saying? How did he accomplish bringing glory to God? In two ways, in his life and in his death. His death is found really in verse 1 and also is part of verse 4 in the things that you've accomplished me to do because when we get there, it points to the cross as well. But also in his life. How does he glorify the Father in his life? Well, to use the text itself and nothing but the text, really, it's seen in the three gifts that he relates to in verse 2. What are they? Look at them again. All authority was given to the Son. Secondly, all believers were given to the Son. Thirdly, the Son gave eternal life. So in all that he accomplished, he was given authorities. Here's the first one. There's the expression. Even as you have given him, who is that? The Son. Authority over what? All the flesh or all mankind. All authority was given to him. Go back to chapter 5 of John. Chapter 5, I want you to see this. Verse 27. Even in judgment we see this. 
the authority again. We've already seen it in our study in John chapter 5, verse 27. And he gave him, who is that? Jesus Christ, who is the Son in the context again. What did he give him? Authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son. Any Son? A Son of God? No, he's the Son of God. He is, which means he made himself equal with God, as we've seen in our study. He has this authority. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. Go with me to just two more verses. I have a bunch of them here, but let's go to two of them that you're familiar with. Go with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. I want you to see who we're dealing with. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. You know verses 19 and 20 about preaching the gospel. We refer to that as the Great Commission. Watch what he said in verse, 13, uh, verse 18 before he had that quote-unquote Great Commission. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, watch, how much? All. All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. That's it. Don't have to go any further. There isn't any place else to go. All authority in heaven, all authority in earth, been given to whom? Jesus Christ. No wonder we find your salvation in him. You see? It's all found in him. Go with me to chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 27. All things. What? All things. Maybe that only means some. I don't think so. I think it means what it says. All things have been handed over to me. By whom? My Father. Very consistent. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now again, we won't deal with the total exposition of that because it's really coming up in John 17. But what we see here again is all authority was given to him. We find that, for example, in passages like Ephesians, and I won't turn there, but Ephesians chapter 1, where all authority, he is the head over all the church. Who's the head of the church? It's not a pastor. It's not any man. It's not any priest. It's not anybody human other than the one that took on flesh, Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. First Peter chapter 3 says the same thing. It was God who said, this is my beloved son, he, him. It was God, the Father, that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus has the right to rule over all men. John chapter 17, go back there. The Father has given him that authority. What does that mean that he has the authority over all flesh? Listen, it includes this, which is very important to our text, very important to his mission. What is that? That authority includes the ability, listen, to forgive sins and context, the ability to give eternal life. No one has the ability to give eternal life. No minister, no rabbi, no priest, no pope, no whatever has the ability to give eternal life. Only Jesus Christ has, listen, the ability to give eternal life because he has authority over all flesh and the authority given to him by the Father. That's why you have the second part of the gift. What is that? And the third tied in. Watch. Even, even as, it's a comparison here, watch. Even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that's true. Watch this. Explanation, that to all whom you have given me, 
he may give, give and give, eternal life. He may give eternal life. What do you have here? All that you have given me. Folks, you can't get around this. Whether you are comfortable with it or you are not. This is called divine election. Plain and simple. God is in control of everything he created, including man who was made in the image and likeness of God. And while we may boast about who we think we are, even as a Christian, those who have truly come to Christ only came to Christ because God allowed you to come to Christ. Plain and simple. Bottom line, let me give you this. There are theological debates and circles about this, that, and the other thing. I try to oversimplify things myself because of my little finite brain. And, uh, and be, I'm serious. And because of that, and here's the bottom line. You can debate and argue about positions and whatever. Here it is. The bottom line, only the elect will be saved. That's what it is. You're not going to have any, elect, any unelect in heaven. They're all going to be elect. Bottom line, debate all the other issues you want. Have some fun. And by the way, those times are fun. That's the bottom line. You want me to make it simple for you? I won't do it. Let's let the word of God do it. Let's look at it. Go to John chapter 6. We studied this. Let's go there. If you want a summation of salvation in, let's call it, what am I going to call it? I don't know. I haven't got it in my notes. Let me, let me call this election 101. Okay? Simple. Here it is. John chapter 6, verse 65. See if the word of God really doesn't make it simple. I'm in Luke 6. No wonder I can't find it. It's like I looked at my notes this morning in Sunday school class, and it said, um, what was the one that it said? It said, turn to 1 Peter 11. Mm, there isn't in 1 Peter 11. It's not there. Okay. That was a mistake in my notes. It was supposed to be 1 Peter 1. But anyway, John, okay, chapter 6. Watch this. We'll do it simple. John chapter 6, verse 65. I'm only going to give you three points. Here it is. Point number one, verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason, I said to you, now watch this, no one can come to me. How many people? No one, no one can come to me unless, what? Father called him. It's been granted to him from whom the Father. Point number one, you cannot come to God unless, what? The Father grants it. Impossible. That's what he says. Number two, look at verse 37. All the Father gives me, what? Help me. Will come to me. And the one that comes to him, I will in no way cast out. Point number two. Point number one was, no one comes to God. When you hear about people saying they're searching for God, let me tell you something. If they are, it's because God's already working. That's the bottom line. Because no one comes to God unless he gives them. He's got to grant it. Point number two, all those who have been given will come. That's what it says. All that the Father had given, they come. So everyone that the Father gives comes. It's very simple. That's point number two. And by the way, you say, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm elect. What does he say? I will in no way cast him out. There is nobody that I know of, and you help me out with this, 
but no one I know of that's ever been in this world, ever will be in this world, that walks around when they come into the world and those parents see that baby come in and they're joyous at first, that's after the baby's cleaned. And they're joyous and they're rejoicing and so forth. And by the way, I'm waiting for my next grandchild who I hope will be born this week or next week. So you get all excited about that child. I don't know of any child that ever comes in the world that has a stamp across the head, elect. Doesn't happen. So what do we do? We preach the gospel to everybody. If you are without Christ, come. He will not cast you out. If God's working in your heart, he's already drawing. If you've heard the gospel and you come to Christ, so you see evangelism works absolutely together with it. Not apart from it. We go, we give the gospel. All those that the Father, you won't come unless the Father draws. What happens? All those that are given to the Son are going to come. Then what happens? What happens if I come to him and he doesn't like me? Well, that's John chapter 6, verse 35. Let's look at verse 35. Point number three of a, what did I call it? I, election, I think, or sovereign, I don't know what it was. 101, but anyway. Now, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Watch this. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Right? Isn't that what he says? So the bottom line is, God's got to give them. The ones that are given will come. The ones that will come will always be received. That's my simplicity of what we're saying here. So in John chapter 17, when he's saying to them, even as you give me our authority, to all whom you've given me, he's dealing with election. Because he knows, though Jesus Christ has ministered in the world, though Jesus Christ has come into the world, though Jesus Christ has gone to the crowds and spoken to them and so forth, he knows that he's talking to dead men. And no one can get an understanding, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, unless God opens up their understanding. And he leaves that with the Father. And that's what the apostles were to do as well. We're not to worry about who's going to come or who's not going to come. We're worried about our job. Same thing. And the apostles as well. And he knew that the Father would take care of all the rest. Our job, simply put, is this. Preach the gospel to every creature in the world, period. Go out and do it. Leave the rest to them. Because you know what? The very people you don't think are going to be saved will be the ones that are saved. And the very ones that you look at and say, well, that guy's a good candidate for salvation. Really? I don't think so. Those are usually the ones that are wrapped up in good works and never get there. But everyone whom God has given, and I want you to understand this. It's important before we go here today. It's very important that everyone that comes to him, watch this, he gives eternal life. Isn't that great? I thought I was going to get through verse 5, and I'm not going to make it. Okay? But what you see in verse 2, and I'm not being funny. I just, I just can't get it all in. My heart is, listen, he, he calls us. We come to him. And what does he pray as he's going to the cross, as he sees a cross in front of him? God, remove it? No. No wonder when he gets to the garden of Gethsemane. Did he feel that? Yes, we'll see that. But he wanted the Father's will to be done. And as he's on the way and he's praying, he's praying, Father, oh, just glorify. Let them see who I really am, that I might bring glory to you. And I know you've given me all this authority. And those that you've given to me, he said, I know they're going to come. And I'm going to give them eternal life. How is he going to be able to do that? When he completes the course and he does it in life and then in death, in the cross of Calvary. And so he's going to give eternal life to everyone. These are tremendous 
tremendous verses. So those three expressions, God gives all authority to the Son. God gives believers to the Son who are unbelievers at the time. And what happens? Listen, every believer is given, look at verse, we'll talk about verse 3 next week. But in verse 2, every believer is given eternal life. Honestly, folks, my personal belief is that you have got a great passage just in those two verses on eternal security. You say, I do? Yeah. If it's eternal life, what does that mean? What does eternal mean? Well, maybe it doesn't mean that. Oh, yes, it does. I give them eternal life. Listen, we studied this already. And they shall, help me, never perish. Neither shall anyone do what? Pluck them out of my Father's hand. Neither shall they pluck them out of my hand. And in that, he says, I and the Father are one. That's a tremendous passage. If you have come to Christ, it's because God worked in your life. Now, I'm going to say this regarding myself and anyone here that is saved. There was no reason in you or me for him to do that. It wasn't because you were born in the United States of America. It wasn't because you were born in the right family. It wasn't because you have the best personality or you're the smartest person in the world or you've got riches and you can buy this and you can buy that. It wasn't because you went to church. It wasn't because you were religious. It was simply because, guess what? He says this. He says all that you have given, he will give, to, he, he will give eternal life. And I'll get to this next week to find out who the only true God is and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We'll deal with that next week, but let me give you one of the verses. You know it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And he didn't choose you because of who you are or me because of who I am. And we ought to be down on our knees and say, I have, don't know why, but thank God you saved me. And the most grateful people the most joyous people when it comes to singing, the ones that ought to be clapping their hands, are believers. Because we've been saved. Because God has worked. And listen, when you're going through trials, when you're going through those tribulations, and we all do, when there's that difficult situation, you just lost your job, when you and your spouse are not getting along the best, when things are not going right with your children, and by the way, when those things happen, we don't want to tell anybody. Why? They'll think we're less of a Christian. It's not true at all. God's using all of those trials so you'll be a bigger Christian and a better Christian. We all face them. So when things are not going right in your neighborhood and all of those discouragements are there and you begin to sit down and don't tell me you've never done this and you begin to say, I wonder if I'm really saved. Listen, if you came to the Father... Or through, by the Father, through the Son, the Son took you. And when he took you, he gave you eternal life. And there isn't any trial. There isn't life. There's Romans 8. There isn't death. There isn't anything in this world that can separate you from the love that's found in Jesus Christ. You've been given eternal life, and you are still saved. And be picked up by that. And be encouraged by that. What a wonderful Savior. What a prayer. 
first two verses of his prayer, and he's talking about a relationship that we can have with the Father. He's talking about what he's given to us. Why shouldn't we just stop here and go out in the world and start telling everybody about the gospel? Because we get wrapped up in our own little world. Because we get up in emotional highs and down, and God knows that. In just a couple of hours, all those that he's saying this to are going to scatter and leave them alone. I'm telling you that so you don't get discouraged. But by God's grace, isn't it marvelous? Even when we fail, he picks us up. That's why we're to pick up one another. That's why verses on the wall, we still haven't got to Philippians chapter 2. That's why in those verses we find that the example that Christ had was he didn't think of himself. He thought of the glory of the Father, and he thought of us, and he just kept his eyes focused on that all the way to the cross, book of Hebrews. And now we're told to focus our attention on the author and finisher of our faith as we walk through the trials of life. If God strengthens us, and what a joy to know that we have eternal life. Fellow believer, rejoice in that. We'll talk about eternal life in verse 3. I thought we'd get to it today, but Lord willing, next week. It's a precious thing we have. Don't take it for granted. Don't take for granted that you've been brought to the Father. Don't take for granted that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. If you haven't come to Christ, come to him. The Son wants you to understand that he's the Messiah. He wants you to be manifested in the sense of seeing and bringing glory to him so that the Father would be glorified when you recognize that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Salvation is only found in him. You can believe on him right there in the pew. You don't have to have some special ceremony, some special prayer. What you need is a humble heart that recognizes that you're a sinner, unable to save yourself, and simply bow your heart and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I trust in the work of you, sir. You do that, come to the Son. He will not cast you out and will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you for the word of God. Thank you for these verses. And Lord, I know I still haven't done them justice in getting through these verses, but Father, how precious that your son would be so focused on pleasing you and making possible salvation for us that he recounts with all authority that he was given authority so that he could still the storms of the sea, so that he could speak things would stop, that your son still went to the cross and kept his focus on obeying you so that you would be glorified and that he would give eternal life. Father, we all started in time. We all came into this world at a point in time and to think that you would stoop down to look upon us and consider giving eternal life is beyond our imagination. We thank you and praise you that you brought many in this auditorium to faith in Jesus Christ, and we have that gift of eternal life. Help us to be thankful for that. Help us to live with our expectations on bringing glory to you. Have our focus of attention that you would be glorified as our life brings that to you. And if there'd just be one young or old soul in this room that has not yet come to Christ, 
Help them to see that it is you who are in control of things. And if you're calling them in their heart right now, they might humble their heart, trust in Jesus Christ, and be saved. It's our heart's desire. It's what we're here for, to preach the gospel. And we pray, Father, you'd help us to live the gospel this week for your honor and your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.